0: This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance podcast number 71. Uh, With me in Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. Hey. Uh, In Toronto, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Hi. In Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. And um, in India, Varun Mathur. You're in New Delhi again?
1: Yeah, New Delhi. Hello.
0: Hi. All right, um, I wanted to read a very brief part of um, Giorgio Agamben's um, forward to uh, his book collection of essays on the pandemic called Where Are We Now? Um, and uh, it, it's very short. It's two paragraphs, so allow me that. Um, this is Agamben. Quote, during the crisis of the third century that unsettled the Roman Empire Diocletian and Constantine launched a series of radical reforms of its administrative military and economic structures instigating changes that would culminate in the Byzantine autocracy in the same way the dominant powers of today have decided to pitilessly abandon the paradigm of bourgeois democracy with its rights, its parliaments and its constitutions and replace it with new apparatuses whose contours we can barely glimpse. In fact, these contours are probably not entirely clear even to those who are sketching them. The defining feature, however, of this great transformation that they are attempting to impose is that the mechanism which renders it formally possible, formally possible, is not a new body of laws, but a state of exception. In other words, not an affirmation of, but the suspension of constitutional guarantees. The transformation in this light presents similarities with what happened in Germany in 1933 with the new chancellor, Adolf Hitler, without formally abolishing the Weimar Constitution, declared a state of exception that lasted for 12 years and effectively invalidated the constitutional propositions that were ostensibly still in force. While the Nazi Germany was necessary to deploy an explicitly totalitarian ideological apparatus in order to achieve this end, The transformation we are witnessing today operates through the introduction of a sanitation terror and a religion of health. What in the tradition of bourgeois democracy used to be the right to health became seemingly without anyone noticing a juridical religious obligation that must be fulfilled at any cost. We have had ample opportunity to assess the extent of this cost, and we will keep assessing it, presumably each time the government again considers it to be necessary. We can use the term biosecurity to describe the government apparatus that consists of this new religion of health, conjoined with the state power and its state of exception, an apparatus that is probably the most efficient of its kind that Western history has ever known. Experience has, in fact, shown that once a threat to health is in place, people are willing to accept limitations on their freedom they would never theretofore have considered enduring, not even during the two world wars, nor under totalitarian dictatorships. The state of exception, which has, for the moment, been extended until January 2021, will be remembered as the most prolonged suspension of legality in Italian history carried out entirely without objections from the citizenry or significantly from their institutions. And I'll stop there, I think. Um, It's a terrific book of, of, um, I think 10 or 12 short essays he wrote for magazines and and newspapers. Um, And uh, he has been mercilessly attacked in media for this, just pilloried and, and ridiculed and, you know, with Adam Kotzko, who was an odious writer in, um, I forget, Wired or one of those, The Atlantic somewhere, um, you know, said he was a crank and, and, you know, the title of his article was What Happened to a Gambit? Uh, So this is this is the tenor of, uh, of exclusion, as it were, that, that, um, well, that oh man hold on my microphone is fella jack litman can edit this out okay i'm back um so it's it's very interesting and i just want to mention before talking to you guys that um there was a, a documentary very quickly on norwegian television on nrk the the state channel the, the bbc of norway it was a sort of mockumentary making fun of conspiracy theorists and what the guy did was pretend to be doing a serious documentary about surveillance, invasion of privacy, um, <clears throat> suspensions of due process, and so forth. And, uh, and then about two-thirds of the way through, he said, OK, see, I, this is all a big joke. Everything you just heard was rubbish. And, and this is the problem with conspiracy theorists. And then at the very end, he introduced a guy who was a believer in the, the he was the president of the flat earth society so essentially they were equating uh concern about surveillance with with the flat earth people um it was a way to completely silence the public essentially uh and it was it was just insidious and and irritating in the extreme and the funny thing is that that the first part where he was pretending to be serious about, about all of these things, probably 80% of what he said was true, was right. Yeah. It was correct. I was watching it going, wow, this is, this is weird. It's like some of it's not right, but it's interesting this stuff is being said. And then, of course, it was entirely dismissed as, as rubbish and, um, and that everybody should feel ashamed if they had bought into it or something anyway um yeah corey you have your hand up
2: i mean but that's sort of how it's being framed now you put everything out in the open right can you hear me can you hear me is
0: that me okay
2: so i mean you with that I, i don't know whether you saw it um Who was it? There is, there's a new ad out from New York about a young girl who has myocarditis and she goes to the hospital and she's given all these wonderful medicines and machines. And it's it's just, you know, people have this life. So it's normalizing all this. And instead of hiding it, it's, you know, like the sudden illness. If you actually Google that, you'll just find, you know, tons and tons and tons of deaths, sudden illness, you instead of hiding it, you just put it right out there you know, and present it as normal. And so what we were talking about earlier, just how um, maybe Johan could speak to it, how there's no frame of reference for what has changed, for what's missing. Um, What that example I use, um, for instance, that Term selling out, which everyone used to absolutely understand. And now that's just gone. And no one, not only is it not understood, I mean, no one has any inclination at all of, of the meaning behind that. So that literally has just disappeared as though it never existed. And, right. and so, you know, I'll, anyway, I also wanted to add in, John. Um, Just out of the Goodbye to Language 2014 by Jean-Luc Godard, who passed away recently, Um, the state is given absolute power. 1945, Jacques Ilal, is that how you pronounce it, Johan? Ilal? Okay, he saw it all coming, almost, atomic power, GMOs, advertising, the state takes all, nanotechnology, terrorism, this is Hitler's second victory. And then it goes on. So again, but um, from the film, Goodbye to Language. And, and again, you know, just like his film, as soon as he became political and serious, you know, he is basically more ostracized and um, sort of shoved out.
0: Right, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it it's remarkable. I, I just posted a new blog post today and there's a quote um, in there. Also speaking of, of prophetic statements, maybe I can find it. Um, from Terry Eagleton, written in 2000. Um, And this is what he says, quote, the prospect now looms for the coming millennium of a progressively bunkered authoritarian capitalism, beleaguered in a decaying social landscape by increasingly desperate enemies from within and without, finally abandoning all pretense of consensual government." for a brutally forthright defense of privilege." Close quote. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, there were people that saw this coming. Um, and and um, yeah, Godard, I I miss Godard already. Uh, Johan?
3: Oh yeah, in, in relation to that Eagleton quote, I, I'm going to revisit Robert Paxton's uh, set of, of fascism's foundations, may, maybe a little later, because I have a, a, a few other things to mention as well, but I think I think that's very, very close to home, that, that quote. And Corey, I think it's very interesting, you mentioned that this, well, well you, you take out the, this, you, you lift up this aberration of, of myocarditis in, in a child, and you provide this frame of reference, this frame of interpretation, within the, the dominant structure of authority for, for people to make sense of it. So you know that that renders it, any any sort of critique based in, in the occurrence of, of these admittedly very, very very weird occurrences, completely impotent, because you know it gets framed in relation to the, the dominant order of authority. Uh, and uh, in in connection to this, especially in relation to the Agamben quote I I stumbled upon this um, the survey of the well basically a representative selection of Swedes from, from some time during this past year. I was really, you know, I was struck by this, and it's been really actually bothering me more than, than many other things have, because of the implications of some of this survey's findings. So it was about, you know, values and and value judgments in relation to uh, to liberal democracy and and without going into detail, uh, a full third of of the respondents here. They want to disenfranchise wrong thinkers, You, you know, no, this this third, they even they even wanted freedom of speech to be withdrawn from groups. The respondents felt strongly negative about. So, you know, we're not very far from talking about political prisoners held in isolation because because of this emotional reaction to their being framed as a foil you know this is actually what they're saying so at the top of the list of hated groups there, there, there were the, the sweden democrats and and then came pro-lifers and at the third spot came anti-vaxxers you know these terrible dangerous oh, conspiracists and on top of all this you know two thirds, a full two thirds of the several hundreds of respondents, I think uh, a thousand and a half of respondents wanted some sort of disenfranchisement for these you know, loathsome bad guys. Uh, as a parenthesis, the supporters, supporters of the Sweden Democrats were the most authoritarian yet followed closely by uh, social Democrats uh, and female social Democrats in, in, in the main. And, you know, we've talked about this increasing authoritarianism over the last couple of years, but this kind of strikes me as something novel emerging in in connection with that Eagleton quote, perhaps, you know, kind of honest, even innocent adherence to to fascism by the general public, because, I mean, if if I read between the lines here, I really think this pretends the death of enlightenment liberalism. It's it's really the death of the modern political project based in this notion of rational popular agency because what they're saying here is that there will be no more deliberation, there's going to be no more discussion with the groups or with abuse that the dominant social order has deemed heretical, and I mean, it's not even in relation to any principles of discernment. It's because they feel animosity towards these, you know, Disney villains. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there. So yeah, go ahead.
0: No, it's you know, something occurred to me when I when you sent that to me earlier today, and I was looking it over and Google translating the Swedish, uh, because the Swedish Democrats function much like. The alt right in the United States—they—they, hmm. um, they, for a, a huge swath of of you know the the bourgeois liberal class—they represent you know fascism. That's what that's what people think fascism is. And this is the service that Trump um, provides for the ruling class: is that he becomes this touchstone for all things hated, and. Um, all you have to do still, even today, uh, is have even the faintest association with Trump. And you, and you are invalidated instantly um, because you know, you're you not allowed to. And it's this very binary thinking. And it's, uh, it's a very easy scapegoat mechanism, in a sense. And, and I see that scapegoat mechanism. I have to write more about this at some point, in fact. Um, kind of being reproduced in in sort of sub sub filums of scapegoating happening everywhere uh in in media and in popular what passes for popular culture and so forth um anyway uh so yeah that it's very interesting and just the fact that that the term wrong thinking is employed um is frightening. I think all by itself, actually. Um, Okay, Uh, Corey, did you?
2: Um, I just wanted to, I knew that I had come across biosecurity and I just wanted to read a couple of things. COVID-19, this is from just on Twitter, March 24th, 2020 when this first started. COVID-19 is being tapped and utilized by the World Economic Forum for the Coming Financialization of Nature. Terms such as biosecurity will be fully utilized as a means to obtain the social license that is required by a populace paralyzed by fear. And then I have um, a paragraph, maybe we can link to, out of one of the articles I wrote back then. And then March 21st, the next day, I have written, enter social engineering, language and framing in the new era of biopolitics and bioeconomics. Adding the prefix bio, the unthinkable becomes apolitical and even desirable to the distinct public, a naturalizing of the political economy of phone neutrality. Uh, And then I have a quote um, from someone in Spanish, I believe that maybe we can link to that. And then just finally, I've got um, March 21st, same day in 2020, March, yeah. The green veneer of bio will effectively um, discourage critical analysis. Those that dare challenge such bio narratives will be subjected to shame and ridicule. Not by the architects of the bio narratives that will strengthen and expand current power structures, but by their own peers. And I think um, that sort of goes in line with what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. No, that's very good. I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to, you know, pimp for my own work here, but my the blog post I posted today has a lot of stuff relating to to the various threads. Um, psychologically if nothing else but ideologically that that are contributing because it's not a single thing that that has caused this this as Agamben puts a state of exception to be so so accepted uh although again and I said this last time it needs to be emphasized there were you know millions of people in the street protesting against these measures this is this is a kind of crisis of the white bourgeoisie western white bourgeoisie which is substantial enough god knows but um but it but it's not it's not you know uniformly like accepted by everyone um and and not nearly but but there are all these other factors that run into it i and it's too complicated to go into but but there, but there are aspects to, to sort of screen habituation, the, the destruction of public education, um, the increased precarity in people's um, livelihoods, um, uh, the, the 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 you know destruction of the safety net, welfare state, both in Europe and here, uh, and and the the just sort of raw. Growing inequality, the basic, fundamental, extraordinary polarization of wealth and 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 poverty that is contributing to all of these things—it's a whole matrix of factors. Um, Johan,
3: yeah, I, I completely agree, and and I I think it, it's very important to emphasize that hatred and animosity towards the alt-right and and such things as the sweden democrats that that is class hatred and very often it's vicarious class hatred because i mean honestly who is really upper middle class anymore if you look at the cards but i I was meaning to ask uh, varun because we spoke a couple of days ago and and you talked about how these tendencies towards uh, a political theater between two contenders that basically represent the very same thing are quite visible also in in Indian politics. And I I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit in context.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the older government, the Congress, which have sort of positioned them as the the freedom winners of the country and have the largest, uh, or did have the largest political party at some point.
2: Under that government is when liberalisation
1: was introduced, and it eventually became privatising of every possible thing that you could imagine. So you, the, there was a transformation of the socialist republic, which was um, very much built on savings and agrarian culture, into a sort of economy of spending and indulgence and debt, and um, And there was a very, very definitive mechanism of changing habits and behaviors that was put into place through entertainment, through television, through advertising, through trend making, and so on and so forth. And when this new party, the BJP, when they were not the new party, but when this party came to power, it was more about uh, right-leaning Hindutva kind of ideology that people were attaching to it, which does have enough background to it, but, both parties that people are looking at as polar opposites are continuing to implement the same kind of policy. So, and which is in favor of the technocrats or the big industrialists, which are still bleeding the country dry. It's nothing, there's no difference between the industrialized policies that they're, the economic policies that they're implementing. So the country keeps getting, I mean, country. the country is continuously divided amongst itself thinking that the voting for a different party might help but the larger trajectory of liberalisation which was intended to create destabilisation and debt has been implemented even by this government so it hasn't it hasn't been any different in that sense yeah
0: yeah yeah um, well i think i think that that um, one of the things that that again been repeatedly addresses in in that this whole series of essays is um the 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 use of alarmism in general not not just covid but that there is a constant state of fear-mongering that is carried out one way or another and and um, th- that that the public is has no um there's there's no, there's no there there there's no purchase on this information because the there. Agamben wrote a book in 1978, interestingly called "The Destruction of Experience," um, and and it it prophesied a lot of what has happened. In fact, because the public increasingly, everybody increasingly experiences the world in an ever more um, ineffable abstract manner that, that, that there's no concrete um, experience that they relate to the climate crisis is based on computer modeling it's based on statistics I said in this this post I wrote today that that um, that in fact let me let me read that because mm-hmm. paraphrasing it is stupid um, uh, uh, In fact, I'll read you two paragraphs. Quote, Agamben wrote this in 1978. Debor wrote Society of the Spectacle in 1967. The very first lines of Agamben's essay are, the question of experience can be approached nowadays only with the acknowledgement that it is no longer accessible to us. For just as modern man has been deprived of his biography, his experience has likewise been expropriated, close quote. People, and then I continue, people today take smartphone photos of their pseudo experiences. Cultural meaning has lost all relevance. Or rather, the relevance must be searched for, excavated, and submitted to an exhaustive interpretation. Such interpretation lies outside the skill set of most people living in the Western world. The climate crisis like COVID is outside direct experience. Computer modeling and abstract statistical analysis provide something that substitutes for evidence the unseen world that opened up at the end of the 19th century with the discovery of optical with the discovery of optical instruments, including the camera and microscope, and which led to psychoanalysis has been replaced with the impossible to see. The proof is code. Instead of psychoanalysis, there is algorithm. Close quote. That's the end of what I wrote. Um, So uh, my point is that that a lot of people have written about these trends for forty years, fifty years. You know, Godard was among them. But uh, it is it is just that it has accelerated to an almost unimaginable degree over the last two years, three years. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you guys saw the, the there was a, a tweet clip circulating of um, the happy campers at the EU um, kind of taking photos of each other and smiling and laughing and everything, just as they're about to ration energy for all the countries in the EU. Um, The ruling class no longer hides their privilege. (laughs) It's, you know, private jets come and go um, daily. The majority of air travel, in fact, is private jet uh, without without pretending that somehow um, they're actually concerned about the well-being of people. I mean, winter is coming to Europe. It'll be interesting to see... Um, exactly how far uh, people will tolerate things because, um, you know, prices keep going up everywhere. Certainly in Norway, prices uh, continue to rise for everything, food, building supplies, gas, heating, everything. Electricity is, you know, just astronomical in Southern Norway. It's it's almost incomprehensibly high. Anyway, okay. um, Hiroyuki. Yeah, <laughs> um, I just wanted to check in with you
4: here. I, I'm here. I'm just listening to um, uh, all the uh, catastrophe, uh, you know, we observe, and uh, um, I'm just thinking how you know all those things are fitting into um, the larger framework of. Uh, uh, Capitalist hierarchy and um, the way things are uh, tightened up by austerity and economic measures. And um, so it seems like um, everything is in place to um, perpetuate the. Um, uh, The current social formation, unfortunately. And uh, my question would be uh, um, Is there any way uh, the divisions and uh, uh, corruptions of the uh, institutions um, we're facing, um, are those things, uh, could they be uh, somehow? be some kind of momentum uh, for the uh, uh, emergence of uh, new kind of social relations that are based on people's interests and uh, how you know could we go about it you know
0: yeah well this, this raises a question this was something that I think I mentioned to you guys during the week that I wanted to talk about here I wanted you guys to talk about um and that is there's a large percentage of people that I speak to and I tend to keep my mouth shut uh around here for a variety of reasons because I don't want to make life hard for my family or anybody else I don't want to make waves I'm technically still um, a U.S. citizen, not a Norwegian citizen, and so forth. And I just don't want conflict, and so I avoid um, a lot of topics if I can. But my experience is that uh, if if I discuss, say, the Green New Deal, green capitalism, these emerging markets that are pegged to uh, this new jillionaire class, unprecedented one um, percent uh, people. People will uh, ask, "Well, but that seems like a good thing. That seems like a good thing. Green capitalism. What, what's wrong with it? Um, certainly, bet we can't keep you know polluting the earth. So, so this seems like an improvement, right? This seems like a good thing. Uh, and and I never know how to answer that in a sense, because I think it, to answer this would require six or seven hours of, of, uh, of historical, you know, information and precedent and, 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 and it's hard to know how to capsulize that, how to explain, and maybe we've touched on this before, to explain that the, the, the people who have the power are not well-intentioned. You know, that capitalism fundamentally manufactures poverty before anything else. That's its major, you know, that's the major product you get under capitalism. First and foremost is property, is inequality, is exploitation. Uh, but people shut down and don't want to mm-hmm. hear that. They don't believe it. They don't accept it. And they think you're, a. you know, the earth is flat. Um, Johan? Uh,
3: yeah, I think, I think. The question you're asking, Hiroyuki, is a very pertinent, and, and it's it's one I I've been tracing for for the past maybe two years since we've started talking. Now, I mean, how how can we we envision radically alternative social structures emerging in, in this context? And I I think. I think things need to get much worse before they can get better because in some sense I think that the technological structure, the the digital media world and and the the, the alienation inherent to capitalism in general is kind of crowding out any ability to set roots for these alternative structures. But then again, we have parallel developments going on all the time last this this Sunday I, I brought a a couple to church with me these. Nice anti vaxxers with with a kid, and and they introduced me to the farmers' markets. So, so, I mean, th- these things are happening, but I think they're an exception. And I was also meaning to ask you on uh, regarding your garden, what what are you producing there, and and how long could you survive on on what grows in in your garden? Maybe that goes out to to a couple of the rest of you.
4: Well, the the I think the reason why I'm uh, working with uh, soil and uh, plants and um these these things are I think it's it's uh w- w- in one way uh it just makes me feel better <laughs> you know it's it's the way I want to relate to the environment I you know mm-hmm. I, I want to see what happens if I uh do this or that and uh and it, it it's just um uh um, it makes sense to uh, connect myself to the environment in essential ways, like you know, uh, making food and all that. And and to be honest, um, for the past a few years, I've been doing this. It, the, the, I think the the basically what I found out was that it's very hard to produce food. It's 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 almost impossible to be self-sustaining and it's also uh, it must be a group um, activity it has to be done within the community so that people can uh, take different roles in um, making it work so uh, i'm finding a lot of things and uh, so it's been very very uh, constructive uh, but at the same time um, um, there are many, many questions and issues. And to answer your question, I, I don't think I can sustain myself with um, <laughs> what I grow. <laughs> I don't, I don't think. But I I have been uh, investigating um, ways to forage and um, uh, those things. And again, it's it's really uh, it, it's not as much uh, about practical. Uh, 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 reason but more like um, I want to understand how things are and where I am instead of I mean uh, in terms of um, um, you know sustaining myself and what community is and what nature is and all those things
0: you know let me just relate something that from back when I was about 24 years old I had a job um it's a long story and i'll i'll excise some of it boulderized version here um but i got a job as a caretaker at a a preschool very large very progressive preschool in los angeles and i was living up in the caretakers um little cabin up the hill from from the school and i asked them one day if i could start a vegetable garden because it was all this empty land and they said yeah sure the kids could could go up and help you plant and stuff. And I didn't know anything about gardening at all. And so, you know, I got a couple of books, this is before the internet and um, read them and I go, okay, this, this doesn't look so hard. And I, I created this kind of impossibly large garden actually that, that thrived, you know, this is California, things grow easily there, the soil's great everywhere in Southern California. And um, I had this massive garden that was producing a huge amount of food that I gave away to the, the parents who came to pick up their kids. I'd say, here, look, take whatever you want, because I have tons of this stuff. Some of them didn't want it because it was dirty. I remember <laughs> somebody saying, but it's all covered in dirt. I said, yeah, <laughs> shit, I hadn't thought about that. You're right, it is. Um, but you know, could I have lived on that myself? Not unless I wanted a diet of you know collard greens and beets. Um, um, I, I couldn't have. No, you know, I, I had no access to dairy or meat or anything else. It would, but but it was still remarkable how much I produced for these people. Um, and this is just a you know, I was a stupid twenty-two year old, um, you know, learning how to garden out of a book. Um, <clears throat> but it is. You know, neighborhood neighborhood gardening, vegetable gardening, is a is a huge thing, and there have been very successful projects. Um, notably, one in Los Angeles that the authorities in South Central that the authorities famously shut down. Police came and and shut it down. Um, it, that's what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> if you if you want to grow things and manufacture food and undercut the supermarkets they will shut you down i um, think Corey, you want know I, I hiroyuki go ahead yeah, yeah
4: no. i i i think you what i um what i see is that there is a huge potential if um organized um uh, measures are taken to uh uh, produce food like you know like we have trees in town you know the, there are fields and uh, uh, people can plant fruit trees you know and there are many many invasive so-called invasive uh, plants that are edible and uh, people don't eat those things and i know that people who fish around here, they would um, pretty much throw away like half the uh, fish. They only eat the filet. And uh, you know, it's the same thing about uh, chicken or whatever. There's so much waste. There there is-
0: Unbelievable, unbelievable waste. There's
4: complete lack of food culture that that, um, respect uh, what food is? What potential for uh, this this uh, entire field of culture? So, um, <clears throat> you know, if no. something like this is or um, uh, emphasized by I mean, structurally emphasized, and people you know put efforts in in those things, uh, there's a huge potential. And the fact that those things are not happening is, you know, like John's just saying, you know, the, it's, it's the capitalist
0: interest, you know? Yeah. Look, if you just Google those listening to this podcast, go Google food waste. There's a number of organizations that, that track, um, you know, supermarket, restaurant, you know, and, and individual household food waste. There's something like 40% of all food produced is thrown away needlessly needlessly while people starve homeless people starve um Corey and then Varun
2: I just wanted to um chime in on that question put out by Johan because my garden like sometimes I feel I should share more about my garden on social media and even when we speak in that because it's I feel like my writing is so sort of dark and cynical and the podcast is the same, right? Because we're talking about things that people don't really want to discuss. Um, whereas the garden to me is this um, alternate side of myself. It's so positive and it's so gorgeous and beautiful. And I agree with Hiroyuki. It's very, very hard to grow food, which makes you, you know, gives you, Um, a reason to have so much more gratitude for it not just for nature and sun and wind and rain but for the migrant workers that come in and um, you know feed us basically and to me as well on one hand I think you know it really means nothing all the gardens I've done and all the work I've done for the past 20 years even though it's amazing because you know part of me thinks it's fake I created it all it's not really Um, nature because I made it all but on the other hand I think we're actually free to create whole communities like this because there's no red tape there's no one we can just do it you don't have to ask you don't have to go seek permission you don't have to pass laws you can just go out with your family and work together and build this right and imagine and I imagine that whole communities that are absolutely gorgeous and they have you know um trees and they're dripping in beauty and oxygen and clean <laughs> air and they have habitat and they have wildlife and they have birds singing and yeah. the, this is something we can really really do right it's completely achievable yeah, yeah. completely and you can incorporate well, food into that um yeah anyway it's and then i wanted to talk about crickets
0: <laughs> okay well before you before <laughs> i want to hear about crickets but before we do that um, two side notes on, on, um, on, you know, home gardens and, and that, um, there is a limit of, at which you will, I guarantee you run into, um, legal issues, trust me. No,
2: I've ran, um, but into the you. second,
0: the second thing is, but the more important thing is I just wanted is nobody realizes how the, what food diversity really means. Um, when I was living in England, I got to know about heritage apple trees, which are going extinct, by the way, literally a thousand varieties. The old Scott nursery in Somerset was one of the last places that had these ancient trees. And I planted a few of them and these wonderful apples. You go to the market, you have red apples, green apples, maybe a few yellow. Apples, that's it. There are a thousand varieties of extraordinary hmm. apples, but they're not commercially viable. You know, you can't they don't produce enough. But see this is true of everything there's a thousand kinds of tomatoes wonderful tomatoes um baker creek is a producer of heritage seeds in missouri and i encourage people to to go look into them what they have it's extraordinary most people have no idea of the you know the 50 kinds of carrots purple white striped all kinds of carrots you can produce you, people think it's just the, the one commercial variety. Um, which is usually the the most tasteless and, but it's disease resistant and, you know, GMO produced and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but it's a, it, it, it's something I think most people are really ignorant of. I certainly was before mm. I started gardening in any serious way. Um, Varun and then and then crickets, but I've seen Varun <laughs> and crickets.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. No, oh, this is very interesting. There's so much to say because I think the link I mean, there's a very direct link between everything that we've spoken so far about in the sense of societal collapse, the disconnection between individuals in society and farming habits in general. Mm-hmm. That we are I mean, it takes a community to farm for a community. It's not an individual's job in that sense, mm-hmm. right? Like you have like people have to grow food together so they can eat together in that right. sense. But why the question becomes then why is society not designed in that way anymore and what is happening in the sense like let's say like let's take the global south in the sense that some of the poorest people are the people who are actually feeding the rest of the population so why are why are people in the cities not going to help them what what is the what is the reason that that is not the intent or is there other pressing things that people are you know so it kind of snowballs into the question of how is the system set up in a way where you're disconnected from where food is being produced entirely, yeah. whether you can do it yourself or not, or you can help others who are doing it or not. That is not even, no longer a question. even. So your, your eating habit is entirely dependent on what the establishment is going to provide to you, which is going to be GMO food now.
0: Like yeah, for example- well, also, go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead.
1: Yeah, oh, just for example. There's, there's this uh, company, I think in the Netherlands, which is called Plant Lab. And on their website and on their showreel, they had pitched about eight years ago. They had the pitch to buy land in Northern Africa, as big as the Netherlands itself, to make mega food parks, which were automated and basically oh to feed all of Europe food, essentially, right? So yeah. the, the, the taking away of the power of the community to feed itself. It becomes quite a big weapon against the public itself, right? Generally.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, this began with, with, um, you know, tariffs and protectionism and so forth that I remember when Western uh, growers, corporate growers, dumped cheap canned tomatoes on Italy uh, and it put Italian tomato farmers out of business. This is 40, 50 years ago. Um, But the other thing is, remember, (laughs) uh, grasshopper, remember that the third biggest industry in the world is packaging. Mm -hmm. Defense is number one. Pornography and prostitution joined together are number two. And packaging is number three. Um, It's an infernal business. I mean, just think about, you know, the food you buy, how it's packaged, needlessly, um, um, inexcusably wasteful and polluting. Anyway, um, Johan Vroom, whoever wants to go. And then crickets, um, Corey, crickets. maybe you'll yeah. talk
2: about crickets. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about crickets? Yeah,
0: yeah go ahead. I do, I do.
2: Well, I I just, I mean, I keep hearing all about crickets. Um, I think in Ontario, we have one of the biggest cricket manufacturers in the world. And I just saw the other day at a garden center, cricket manure or whatever they call it, cricket um, fertilizer, you know, cricket waste. And it just dawned on, like, I don't understand why... This, um, you know, why man has to dominate and exploit every single thing. And now insects, it's horrific enough what we do to animals and, um, you know, sentient sentient life. And it's disgusting. It looks as though they, they're looking at everything. And it's like, you know what, what we do to um, cattle and pigs and everything on industrial scale can actually do that. With crickets and exploit even more on industrial scale, but take up less space and then that's presented as green and sustainable because it's exploitation that takes up less space, but it's still gross exploitation and I don't really understand what. Um, how many different types of proteins we have and you know by way of grain and, and chickpeas and beans and that type of thing why now we have to start a new global industry based on um, industrial life, um, farming of crickets right. so maybe someone can explain to me why.
0: <laughs> well we is a new there. market new market <laughs> right?
2: another emerging market Right. Yeah. Insect
0: disgusting. insect protein, emerging market.
2: But I mean it's presented as green and sustainable, but it's just another way to exploit. It's just of course more yeah. exploitation. Yeah. Of it course. will be, you know, horrific conditions for crickets, you know, and people will laugh and think it doesn't matter. It it matters if you're a cricket. I mean, why do we not <laughs> why why do we not give a give a fuck about how we you treat know, you know, biology and nature. And anyway, it, it just really makes me mad. And just this whole, um, what we're talking about, bioeconomy going forward, a big part of it is synthetic um, biology. And um, like Vroom said, you uh, know, the GMO and synthetic proteins.
0: Uh, oh, I, I I would like to recommend Peter Godfrey Smith's two books, one on uh, called Other Minds and one called Metazoa uh just speaking of sentient beings and and um the surprising intelligence of uh of things like insects and hermit crabs and shrimp and so forth um uh you know people don't think at all about it and and i'm as guilty as anybody you know i love scampi but um <laughs> shrimps are uh remarkably uh whatever we you know it, the whole Smith is a philosopher, and he approaches it from from a philosophical point of view in in many ways, but that a hermit crab, for example, the, the humble hermit crab, if you apply an electric shock to a hermit crab in his shell, he will leave the shell and scurry away and hide. He will come back to that shell an hour or so later to inspect it that's a remarkable form of intelligence
3: yeah.
0: and but people throw crabs live into pots of oil and water you know so there you are okay johan
3: yeah can can you drop those those book titles in the the
0: podcast notes please? i will i will peter godfrey smith but i will I will link them yes
3: great johan. and i i read somewhere recently that even single cell amoebas actually actually learn you know they, they actually they have a, you can't really parse it. I mean, there's no real way to, to explain exactly how this, this takes place at the cellular level because, but, but they have, they, they can actually learn to, to navigate an environment. They can remember stuff that's right. uh, well that's i mean so
0: do plants matter. look at trees yeah, yeah. It, you know it's it, it's it's extraordinary but i was it thinking about, about what
3: Corey said i uh, just just short uh, comment on that because i would say that the the traditional farming community that, that's s- somehow in interdependence with with uh, other life forms that, that's i mean it's hierarchical perhaps but it's it's not domination in the sense of the industrial factory farming sort of setup and there if you crunch the numbers uh traditional farming communities that are fed by by firewood from a forest i mean that's incredibly energy efficient if you think about it also i had a comment on varun's uh, uh reflections here because i mean do you know how many peasant rebellions there were in the 1500s and 69s i mean it was it was incredible an incredible amount of these these violent armed uprisings all over Europe that kept the, the, the hierarchy, the aristocrats and the elite on their toes. And I think an important factor in this is that those people had immediate access to their own means of production. They, they could provide for themselves independently in every local community. And when that is removed in industrialization and urbanization, well, you don't really have any sort of popular up, uprisings anymore. That's yeah, not that then, Yeah,
1: it sounds like you're fa- you're facing, in the sense like everybody's establishment facing; they're not public facing yeah. anymore,
3: yeah. right?
1: Like so, your primary interaction is yeah. with the establishment rather than people, and right. so it's very easy for them to negotiate your relationships with each other.
0: Right. No, I think I I think this is a really germane point actually, and and one to we could expand on for a long while, actually. But um, Hiroyuki? Well,
4: I I was thinking about what you said about the uh, diversity of uh, uh, plants and uh, the food sources. And um, uh, one thing I noticed is that uh, things I would get from um, uh, local uh, nurseries and uh, seed places you know, they're advertised as um, uh, good crops and uh, you can, you know, they they produce a lot and uh, they're tasty. And, uh, but if you have your own plot and you're doing your job uh, growing things, those are not necessarily true. Um, because, you know, we have different climate, we have different soil, we have different conditions. And in order to serve each communities, we need diversities of uh, those species. And um, right. well, one thing I found was that there are plants that are extremely um, uh, prolific and um, uh, producing like what we uh, in my garden there's a um, uh, lamb's quarter which is weed but they come up um, like crazy uh, or maybe a uh, 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 mustard green they would fill up the uh, uh, um, the garden bed uh, without planting anything and I will be planting something next to it and <laughs> the uh, amount of uh things i get is um huge I, I get more from the things that are just coming up so it's it's really um interesting you really need to work with the uh, environment what you have what you have in the community so you know the industrial uh farming would concentrate on those um Products that are good for commercial distribution that that they would have longer shelf lives. They would be shaped nice. They would look nice, but they're yeah. not not necessarily good for your community uh, to be growing. So you know there is uh, uh, you know there's again there's a huge potential, but if you go along going along with the uh, uh, big voices of the uh, uh,
0: big industrial uh, agriculture um right you want to go in there <laughs> well i mean and and growing practices i i learned beekeeping a few years ago seven or eight years ago um but then we moved and and i haven't i don't have hives up here or anything but it was it was a remarkable experience and i really loved it and i want to do it again but it's not that difficult you know it's pretty simple, um, but the, everything is mystified. These are practices that have been intentionally mystified, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, there's enormous wisdom in in traditional farming communities, and 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 um, there are holistic cures and so forth. And I, you know, I mean, I have a bunch of anecdotes about this. My wife's family run a dairy farm, or did her older brother does now, but. Um, uh younger brother technically um you know and and um it's it's this stuff people this is what Varun was saying I mean people are increasingly alienated from the natural world or alienated from as what Johan said too um uh, means of production and and to the point now where all kinds of knowledge has been lost perhaps irrevocably actually in, in many instances, but certainly Western um, post-industrial society, the digital world um, is, appears extraordinarily ignorant when looked at from a certain perspective. Um, Johan?
3: yeah, yeah we're, we're talking about polarization community and you mentioned this, this other minds perspective and and i i thought i might connect back to this the survey i i mentioned in the beginning and this also kind of gets back to the the entire your entire rationale with, with the podcast in general i think because the the results of this survey i i, I talked about you know this desire to use force to to eliminate Wrong thinkers from political discourse. I think this, to a large degree, has to do with an, an ability, an inability, a radical inability to empathize with the others' point of view. You know, to understand from from within a perspective that's taboo and discredited in in, in relation to the authority structure, because, you know, I I mean, we don't have theater anymore. You have nothing that allows people to imagine imaginatively enter deeply into the minds of of a complex, sometimes evil character. You don't have people reading uh, the Crime and Punishment or the Brothers Karamazov. And there's no real religious discourse either that that could allow us to consider things like uh, sin and moral transgression as something internal to ourselves. So all of this gets projected outward onto this incomprehensible other. And it doesn't really matter which side of of the increasingly polarized divide you're standing on. It's the same thing on, on both sides.
0: Right, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is not to say you know that that all ideologies merge or something and become the same thing because that's quite absolutely not true. But but yeah, on a certain level, we we live in this already this massive surveillance state in which you know all of our information data is collected constantly. And Varun and I were laughing about this earlier in the week because I had to change my <laughs> password for my bank, which is connected to the government here is, you know, it's a whole big solemn thing you have to go through. And I thought, you know, come on, um, you know, everything about me and you can get, you know, the government can get any information they want. From me. everything is collected. Every keystroke is collected for everybody. Um, they just don't normally use it but it's stored somewhere and if they want it if the government wants it if private security you know the private security industry wants it whoever might want it they can have it they can get it so so part we are living in this this kind of constant charade of, of legitimacy you know um, pretending that that there is security pretending that you know, our trips to the recycling plant matter, pretending that, you know, <clears throat> that that this is green and that's not green and that cow flatulence has a, you know, an important role to play in saving the planet. Meanwhile, meanwhile, another $13 billion was sent to, you know, Ukraine to fight a pointless fascistic war um, needlessly and and. Uh, completely, you know, pollute the entire region, much as the former Yugoslavia was polluted and and destroyed um, by U.S. and NATO, uh, you know, under Bill Clinton. I, it, it it just it, it it speaks to that so many people in the public don't make these connections. Mm-hmm. Speaks to just how extraordinarily both alienated. I think the average Westerner is, but also just how extraordinarily effective propaganda is, you know, um, and, and, and I see this daily and it's depressing. Um, and it makes me worry for my children, frankly. Um, Varun.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, to uh, what Johan said and also to what you just said about perspective and empathy in the sense that now it's being taught as you posted the link, and yes, no, yes. It's, it's, it's not a question of learning it step-by-step step, that your action has uh, a direct effect on another individual. And so you understand like the reflection of two individuals' actions on each other and how you go about forming those relationships and what you can learn from that. That has been taken over entirely by institutionalized thinking. So now you're going yeah. to be taught it. You're supposed to behave it, but you don't actually feel this, right? Like that's and that is so neurotic in the sense that, that that's a, and that's why, in the sense that perspective loss, I think, is also because of the massive increase in in internet use, like the isolationism that has come with being in a sanitized environment where you're not critically addressed by the outside world, where you are free to address your emotions as you like alone with a screen that entirely just kind of short circuits how you're supposed to relate to other people so that kind of it's this kind of perfectionism that is kind of laid on top of you that you are supposed to be perfect but this is how you're supposed to be perfect and god you so, just
0: touched on a, a bunch of things um, a number of things that i actually so, had in yeah. this, this blog post no but this is really important because i think I think it's, the Danish government is is um, instituting initiating a, a an empathy project for the school system. You know, um, Denmark, the most aggressive supporter of NATO and the war in in Ukraine, wants to teach empathy. It's one of those death of irony moments. But 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 beyond that, it's um, I think I think one of the problems with with isolation and, and screen habituation and people increasingly leading this doubled, a kind of having a kind of doubled identity with their smartphone and, and laptop and whatever it is, is that there actually is a, a kind of mass generalized autism and it was DeBoer who first said that, but it's, I think there's an emotional deficit. I think emotions have become extraordinarily superficial and and that that people have lost the sense of i don't think they can identify their emotions anymore am i angry or really happy i'm not sure i mean that's the sense i get anyway and i think this is part of the pathologizing of you know cognitive skill sets that are being pathologized by by smartphones and so forth um but corey
2: Well, what you were saying, actually, John, about um, the government already knows everything about you, right, which makes the whole process that, you know, very, very ironic. And, you know, the corporate sector knows everything about you, which leaves us, so who are you, who are you protecting your information, Um, you know, what's left of your privacy, who is your enemy, and I guess that is each other again, right? Um, you know you me right each other because you can trust the government with your data you can trust the corporate sector with your data right you can trust Facebook with your data you can trust um, you know Twitter and everybody else with all this information so I guess we're protecting each other from ourselves and I was just thinking about that because um, when you said I worry about our children for example to show the level of um what would you call it, like basically For my children, like one of my, my eldest daughter, for example, even though I, I've tried, I've tried to have, you know, this profound influence on my children at the end of the day, I seem to have so very little. And for example, she just uploaded, um, I learned from another one of my children, um, her own children that she's uploaded her facial recognition to her new phone. And she has the new Google watch to go with the phone, but you need the phone for the watch. And her eight-year-old now has her own phone right this is one of my kids right who hears non-stop from me about how you know dangerous all this stuff is to society and to ourselves and you know there's that massive uptake right there within my own family and so yeah, it's yeah. you know it's really really powerful stuff
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying, um, and increasingly, of course, you cannot live without a smell. A smell phone. That's an interesting phrase. So. Uh, a smell phone. I like it. Um, you can't live without a smartphone. Uh, all the apps that are required now, uh, certainly in Norway, uh, it, much, life is much easier if you if you have bank apps and and all of these things. I mean, my phone is overloaded with this shit. Then most of it, I don't know how to use because I don't want to know how to use it. Um, but but you know that I need some of it to prove who I am when I go certain places. Uh, people don't want to see your passport anymore they want to see your i don't know q code or something that's been put on i don't even know but that's obviously the direction of things right i mean that's but at the, the end, of, reset, but at that's the end the of
2: the day john that's so crazy because what we can't live without is clean air and clean water and food and shelter like those are the real things that matter and all that stuff is just being um, left in the margins and we're, you know, again, further and further yeah. dissociated from nature and thinking the technology will save us. The technology is the most important thing and we cannot live without it. But in yeah. actual biological reality, that's uh, complete fiction. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, there will be a, I think there will be a backlash at some point. I mean, I think, I think there will be Luddite movements um, soon. Um, I think there will be organizing. How brutal the crackdown on those movements will be is, a, is another question. But um, Johan and then Varun, or Varun and then Johan.
3: Yeah, just a short on the, on the smell phone, somebody said, or I read a few years back, that our sense of smell is, is the most primitive and to some extent the most profound aspect of subjective experience. And I think there's maybe something to that. I don't know.
0: It's, it triggers um, memories more than nice. any other um, sense, uh, certainly. Varun?
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say about um, proving your identity through your mobile phone, like the state, <laughs> now the technocracy has to legitimize whether you exist or not.
0: Nice.
1: And yeah, it's being tied yeah. up into, into access to food also, right? Like slowly, that's the intent. That's what they're trying to do right now is that yeah. unless you're legitimized, with a certain set of behavior pattern you cannot access what we are going to provide you yeah. <laughs> or what we can provide yeah. you and that's yeah. really scary
0: well that's why that's why if you if you start growing your own food and um you know let alone uh, raising a few um cattle or sheep or something uh, for meat uh it, 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 I don't know the point at which you will be stopped, but it it Mm -hmm. isn't too far down the road where you will be stopped because that's simply, I mean, and there are countless examples of of community farms being shut down, Um, people trying to live off the grid and being shut down. It's illegal to do this. You have to get a license to do that. You have to get, so it sounds terrific because it's true that, you know, um, <clears throat> this is how we should live. I'm, I'm a big advocate for returning to, you know, riding horses instead of cars. But, um, <clears throat> but you know, the, the giant corporations who make a massive profit off packaging and, and GMO foods and, you know, artificial coloring and, and all of this, this terrible stuff that, you know, I mean, look at the levels of obesity in the Western world. I mean, it's stunning. And um, and and you know a lot of those people suffering a kind of morbid obesity are also malnourished <clears throat> because this is this is this is this is because of the kind of food that the system encourages people to consume and they discourage at the threat of violence. <clears throat> um, the, the, the the trying to gain some sort of autonomy over over what you eat and produce and so forth it's but but a battle will be that that's that's one of the fault lines i suspect looking forward um battles will be fought over that um johan
3: yeah thank you i think you're entirely correct on that i i just wanted to mention my 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 dog just came in here to, to check on me and and i i think it's it's quite a fascinating thing that an animal now now he just felt like coming and see how I how how, how I, I think <laughs> you were with me you know but I was going to give you the 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 quote from Robert Paxton here on on fascism's foundations yes. I think it's I'm, I think it's from like 2005 or something like that I'm not sure 2007 maybe <clears throat> I think they're They kind of reflect our current situation to some extent, so here here they are. Uh, First of all, a sense of overwhelming crisis beyond the reach of any traditional solutions. The primacy of the group toward which one has duties superior to every right, whether individual or universal, and the subordination of the individual to it. The belief that one's group is a victim a sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against its enemies, both internal and external. Dread of the group's decline under the corrosive effects of individualistic liberalism, class conflict and alien influences. The need for a closer integration of a pure community by consent, if possible, or by exclusionary violence, if necessary. The need for authority by natural chiefs, culminating in a national chieftain who alone is capable of incarnating the group's historical destiny. And the superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason, the beauty of violence and the efficacy of will when they are devoted to the group's success, and finally the right of the chosen people to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law.
0: That's the gist yeah. of it. <clears throat> no, it's very good. Um, <clears throat> I, it, it, you know, again, again, um, in that collection of essays, um, notes, the, 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 the continuation of the Reich, the continuation of the Third Reich, and I have written about that, and you have written about it. We've talked about it a good deal, but but the rehabilitation of fascism is a global project right now from the global ruling class, and it's overt and it's not hidden. And um, the Ukraine uh, war is just one small example of of. of a really massive project and and um you can see the rehabilitation of thinkers not just heidegger who was a nazi but who at least could think um in in his own sort of you know exterminationist way but but people like leo strauss and, and we're seeing all the Straussians that came out of the University of Chicago and stuff that, that became the neocons under <laughs> Reagan and since then. And the Biden administration has stopped full of these people. The Brookings, you know, they, they walk the halls of the Brookings Institute and so forth. Um, but Schmidt, as well as Strauss, these these are the thinkers that are, are suddenly appearing um, on my news feed. You know, articles about... <laughs> about Schmidt once a dishonored Nazi whose name nobody wanted to utter but is suddenly being talked about seriously again I mean people wag their finger and and wring their hands a bit and say but well yes you know much as they do do with Heidegger. Um, And and, uh, the fact that these people were members of the Nazi party that you know that that they were racist. That they were imperialists they believed in the colonial project um and you know now this week that we've all had to endure the the, the queen's funeral my god um you know this is a family and a, a royal family that wholeheartedly supported apartheid wholeheartedly um Love there wasn't a dictator that they didn't love and invite to tea. Pinochet, who was this you know loved visiting the the Royals. Um, Ian Smith, on and on and on and on. but but you know, that's not what most people think or or know about them. It, it, some do, but largely that history has been rewritten. and but my point is that that, that there is uh, a marketing propaganda campaign to uh, to rehabilitate not just fascism but the Reich in particular, I think, and 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 you know you'll see it's going to continue and escalate. Um, Corey.
2: Okay, I definitely want to talk about the Queen. So that day, <laughs> I don't even remember what day it was. I think on the tenth, I saw an article. So Queen Elizabeth II's died, what will happen to her $500 million fortune It talks about her 500 million personal assets and the Royal firm which is the $28 billion empire that they call the family business. And I, I just wondered what happened to all the people that were behind the black lives matter movement occupy Wall Street. Um, Every Child Matters for Indigenous, on genocide. I just wonder how they, um, you know, how they basically come to grips with um, being sad about this horrible, um, you know, family, about the death in the family, and how they, at the same time, click and share things um, that they purport to care about, on the other hand. And that same day, anyway, that was Fortune magazine wrote about that, and then I saw a tweet by Indigenous anti-fascists under capitalism, and and he or she writes, I'm told capitalism is the best system we have, and here's um, in the Canadian media, an article, Canadians turn to euthanasia as solution to unbearable poverty. Okay, so this isn't in Afghanistan or a war-torn country, this is in Canada. There is some evidence that poor people who cannot improve their living conditions have been applying to the medical assistance and dying program. So there you have the 28 billion empire with people swooning over the death of of this, um, you know, royal figure versus reality where people are actually dying. Um, as a solution to their poverty. So it's just incredible. You know, yeah, it's it is
0: incredible. incredible. I mean, no, no, this is, and, and Charles, for some reason, there is a, I, I run into people all the time who say things like, oh, I have a soft spot for Charles. You know, he's, and I just, I, and then I do speak up because, you know, I mean, this is a guy who has servants squeeze an inch of toothpaste on his toothbrush at night. And leave it from that iron his shoelaces flat because that's how he likes it. Um, you know, he has been waited on hand and foot since the day he was born, and he is a nasty, bigoted, narrow minded, m- you know, um, middle brow racist. That's yeah, and all people he say is.
2: John, people say, oh, well, it's complicated. Well, actually, no, it's not complicated at all, it's disgusting. And that's yeah. it. They're racist, they're colonists, they're murderers. It's disgusting. No, and it's I
0: mean, disgusting. you know, if he had any integrity, he could walk away from the monarchy. He said, this is outdated, we're done, we're donating this to poverty, we're building affordable housing, we're retiring debt, student loan debt. And that's what we're doing with our fortune. And we're gonna stop all this medieval bullshit and go forward from there. He could do that, you know, but but no.
1: I'd be be, be really happy to talk to anybody who thinks that there is any sort of complication about colonialism. (laughs) I'll be uh, happy to have that
0: I would be happy to talk about some who was it? Somebody, some American commentator said, um, well, you know, yes, colonialism is terrible, but the British colonial project was the most benign empire in history. And I thought, wow, no. you know, tell that to Kenyans and Indians and, and you know, I mean, my Christ. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the manufacturing of famines and, and the concentration camps in Africa and on and on and on, and on and on and on and on and on. You know, I mean, you should know about this. You are a deeply ignorant person if you don't know about this already. So it's, it's, it's just... Yeah, it's appall- It's an appalling spectacle. Um, what was it Christopher Hitchens said years ago about Charles? It's, it's a bat-eared, weak-chinned, prematurely aged something with terrible taste in consorts. Um, that was the quote. Um, Hitchens had his moments. OK, final thoughts from people? This has been kind of interesting tonight. Um, last thoughts and, and, and anything. I wanna mention that um, a book came out last week, week before, I think you can order it now. I will provide a link called Outlaw Theater, um, a bunch of essays and, and reminiscences about the Padua Hills Festival um, I have a dialogue with Guy Zimmerman, the editor in it, and I wrote an essay and there's a wonderful, beautiful essay by Martin Epstein, who has been on the Aesthetic Resistance podcast, um, but I will provide a link and I hope you all buy that book, it's a, it's a nice, you know, it's, it's a nice coda to that movement, Johan?
3: Yeah, just let me send you off with a, with a snippet from a poem, I'll let you guess as to who, who wrote it. I tell you not for your comfort, yea, not for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet, and the sea rises higher. Night shall be thrice night over you, and heaven an iron cope. Do you have joy without a cause, yea, faith without a hope? Thanks.
0: Um, I don't know who wrote it.
3: It's uh, Chesterton.
0: Okay, so I would never have guessed that. I don't know Chesterton, but nice, beautiful. All right, thanks, guys. Um, um, A pleasure, as always. And um, uh, thanks to Jack Lipman um, and and Jessica Close, people who have um, um, helped send me information during the last couple of weeks. Um, My son, Lex, was supposed number one son First of four, uh, supposed to be on, was unable to. He, he's incredibly busy. right now. He just bought a house. They're moving and so on. Um, but hopefully next time we can talk about policing and the criminal justice system in the United States, among other things, um, which he's very well-versed in. So that's next time. But thanks to Hiroyuki, Varun, Johan, and Corey. It is always a pleasure. And um, we'll talk again next time.
4: Thanks so much, John. Thanks, John.
0: Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.